It's Sunday, July 21st. I'm Eric Sorensen, and you are listening to The West Block. On this Sunday, exactly three months till Election Day, the leaders are in full swing, voters are undecided, the polls are shifting. What would the outcome of an election be right now? Today, a brand new seat projection from Wilfrid Laurier University's Barry Kay. Then, the enemy of the people. CNN's Jim Acosta talks to the West Block about his new book and why telling the truth has become a risky business in American politics. And our summer series, Hill Hobbies. This week, in the kitchen with Elizabeth May. As the Green Party leader, it must be food that's good for you. We begin with a look at Canada's political landscape. A spate of recent polls, Ipsos, Main Street, Nanos, Abacus, have been gathered by the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy. And it projects the seats to be won if an election were held now. And it's almost a dead heat. The Conservatives narrowly ahead of the Liberals. The balance of power could be held by the NDP or the Bloc Québécois, even the Green Party or some combination. Let's look at it now by region. First of all, British Columbia is very competitive. Right now, the Conservatives would overtake the Liberals for the most seats, then the NDP and the Greens, with four seats nationally, all would be in British Columbia. Alberta would be on the verge of a total sweep for the Conservatives. Across Saskatchewan, Manitoba and the North, the Conservatives also would dominate. Now, in Ontario, a close national race could be decided here. In multiple Liberal and Conservative battlegrounds, it's a close fight. In Quebec, the Liberals are strong. The NDP, though, could lose almost everything it won two elections ago. The BQ will be a factor, and the People's Party are in for a seat. And Atlantic Canada, the Liberals are on top, but would give up some of the seats from their clean sweep four years ago. The big picture again, the Liberals and Conservatives, a two-way fight, too close to call. And joining us now is the man behind that analysis, Barry Kay. And Barry, first of all, that's not a prediction for October, but the situation as you see it right now. And based on the polls that you've been gathering over this whole year, what is the trend you're seeing? Yeah, well, those polls are from the, uh, the first half of July. The trend actually, uh, the trend had been, of course, uh, the, up to the, for the Conservatives after the, the SNC-Lavalin scandal broke. But little by little, uh, right now it's a virtual tie, three-seat difference. Last month, in June, there was a 18-seat lead for the Conservatives. The month before was even higher. So the, the, the momentum, if, if it, we can call it that, is in fact moving back toward the, the Liberals. And it, it's really, really a horse race. I must say, a horse race where most people don't seem to like any of the horses because, in fact, I think that's why the bloc is up in Quebec and that's why the Greens are having historic gains, although they're, they're not very large. But they're, nonetheless, we're seeing the Greens with more seats than ever. Those polls, as you say, there, there's quite a range and a mix, but you kind of pull them all together to get a good, a nice, some nice mean numbers. Uh, you have been doing these seat projections for decades. Your accuracy has been borne out when you see election night come along. Uh, you're within a few seats, plus or minus. Um, tell us what you're seeing right now in Ontario. Well, Ontario is really where the game's going to be, not just because it's the biggest province, but because it has the, the largest number of competitive swing seats, especially in the 905 area around uh, Toronto going through... Um, uh, through to the Niagara Peninsula. And we start looking at seats in Mississauga and in York Region and in Brampton, uh, even a little bit of Durham. Uh, there's just a mitful of uh, very close competitive seats. I think during the election, it's still a couple of months, three months really away, but during the election, I think that's where the leaders are going to be spending most of their time because those are the seats that are most likely to change hands one way or the other. If Now, right now, it doesn't look like anybody's close to a majority, and that's kind of an interesting question as well. 
but if there's going to be a shot at a majority or even just the determination of who's going to come first, it's, it's disproportionately likely that that's going to be decided, not just in Ontario, but in suburban Ontario, around Toronto, to a lesser extent around Ottawa. And very briefly, are you seeing the effect of Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, in these uh, shifting numbers? Uh, that's the suspicion. Uh, it's, I mean, Doug Ford clearly is, is in decline. He's gone from 41% support a year ago to 24 at the moment. How much of that? I, I certainly understand that the Conservatives are very nervous about it. We see Doug Ford cancelling the Canada Day picnic because he was afraid of being booed, just as it happened at the, uh, the Raptors celebration. So there's a sense of fear on the part of the Conservatives, perhaps some hope on the part of the Liberals, that Ford is going to become an issue. Certainly we saw some ads during June that suggested that the, the Liberals, or at least the anti-Conservative uh, anti people, were thinking that Ford was the, the Achilles heel for the Conservatives, and they're, they're going to shoot for that. My hunch is we're going to hear more about Doug Ford, but from the Liberals, not the Conservatives. Yeah, that's right. Now, British Columbia, there's a bit of a jumble out there, and the Green Party is one of four parties that would expect to win multiple seats. The Greens are doing better than ever. They've never had more than one seat federally. Um, and right now, we have them at four. We've had them at five last month. They're down a little bit. They're all on Vancouver Island. Uh, so the seats, uh, including uh, areas uh, like Esquimalt, uh, Nanaimo, which they've already uh, won, uh, those are seats. Victoria, those are all seats that are probably going to go to Greens as, as, as things look at the moment. Greens are getting votes elsewhere as well. They haven't had before. But at the moment, I don't see them winning any seats east of Vancouver Island. Uh, suburban Vancouver, uh, particularly moving toward the Fraser Valley, a lot of closed seats. Uh, in places like Mission and Port Moody and, and so forth uh, that, in fact, are going to be... Pit, um, uh, Pitt Meadows is another one. Those are all seats that are very competitive. But there's a lot more seats in Ontario than in B.C., but there are certainly seats in B.C. and some other suburban areas around the country which I think are very much up for grabs. And I just want to ask you about the potential for vote splitting on the progressive side. This could happen anywhere across the country, but in British Columbia, for example, if the Greens are doing a little better uh, and the Liberals, maybe they lose some votes to the Greens, is there a potential here for the progressives splitting their votes and conservatives winning some ridings? For sure. That's always uh, a risk, particularly when you've got one more conservative party that is less committed to global, the global warming issue. And you've got three parties on the other side uh, uh, between the Liberals, the NDP, and now the Greens. Uh, and indeed, people have to think strategically. Uh, hopefully, the website we have at lispop.ca, lispop if people are interested, will in fact allow people to have a sense of which ridings are most winnable for one party or another. But you're quite right uh, that the, uh, the pro-environment vote uh, could be split in three ways if, in fact, people aren't astute trying to figure out who the pro-environmental candidate is that's most likely to win in their particular riding. Well, if it's a jumble a little bit in British Columbia, it's even more divided, it seems like, in Quebec. What do you make of the situation with all of the parties that are at play in that province? Uh, the, the bloc is coming back. I don't think it's because separatism is sort of the, uh, the word of the day. But, and in fact, even with the, uh, similar to the Greens and other parts of the country, I think a lot of people are sort of parking their vote with the, the bloc because they're not happy with any of the other parties. So it's kind of a none of the above for the bloc in Quebec. And for the Greens in other places, especially, I, I don't want to suggest the Greens are only doing better in British Columbia, but British Columbia is where they're poised to win some seats. Uh, but a, a number of people are voting Greens because they're just not happy with anybody else. And that's certainly the, um, uh, an underlying concern. Uh, Andrew Scheer has not caught on yet. Maybe he will be. But he's going to be defined by the Liberals as much as the Conservatives from, from here on in. And people are disenchanted with, uh, with Trudeau. And quite frankly, uh, Singh hasn't uh, really cut ice either. So there is no enthusiasm that I've seen at the moment for anybody. And some of those people, they're not all going in other directions, but some of those people are moving now not to third parties but to fourth parties for that very reason.
Well, uh, Barry Kay, uh, the electoral map uh, looks very fluid at this stage, three months exactly before the election. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. I may ask on, on the Russia investigation, are you concerned that that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may have Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. Mr. President. According to President Trump, the enemy of the people was, in that moment, Jim Acosta, chief White House correspondent for CNN. Enemy of the people is also the title of his new book, A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth in America. And Jim Acosta joins us now from Washington. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. That exchange we just watched lasted really about three minutes. Eight months later, how do you feel about it? You know, I, I, feel, I feel good about it, and if I had to do it all over again, I would still try to get that question asked. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I try to do in my book is, uh, you know, print some of the transcripts from some of these exchanges with the president so the reader can uh, read for themselves uh, exactly what goes on. You know, the president is starting to interrupt you just as soon as you uh, get the first few words out of your mouth. So it is, uh, it is a, a difficult experience trying to press uh, the president on some of these things and, and hold his feet to the fire. Uh, but, you know, listen, uh, what transpired after that uh, incident, I think, is, is more uh, important to what, what I'm trying to write about and what I'm trying to get across to readers as they uh, take a look at this book, and that is that the president of the United States uh, is now in the business of demonizing the press, referring to us as the enemy of the people. And, Eric, as I lay out in the book, we went through this whole experience where I tried to get my press pass back after it was revoked following that exchange. And during the case uh, that uh, played out in federal court in, in front of a Trump-appointed judge, uh, this White House tried to make the case that they can go up to any reporter and uh, toss them out if they don't like their coverage. Fortunately, the Trump-appointed judge in that case uh, decided on our behalf. Uh, but it just goes to show you the stakes here in Washington right now. They are quite high uh, when the president of the United States feels it's okay to refer to the press as the enemy in fake news. Well, I mean, clearly, as we saw in that exchange, there is a risk to being abused if you're a journalist challenging the president. But in your book, you're really saying there's a danger here. Are you speaking of a physical danger or a danger to the democratic institution? I think really both. I mean, as I lay out in the book, you know, I, I receive about a death threat a week. Uh, that has continued. Uh, it's, it's gone on for the last couple of years. But it's not just me, uh, my fellow reporters who cover the White House, uh, anchors, correspondents here in the U.S., they've all been dealing with similar experiences. And it is, it's something that I feel that the public has a right to know about, not only here in the United States, but in places like Canada, where people care about democratic freedoms. I, I think also, when the president of the United States feels it's okay to refer to the press as the enemy, then yes, uh, something bigger uh, is at stake. And that is how the public values a First Amendment, values a free press. And that has been very much under attack over the last couple of years, as we've seen, uh, you know, at rally after rally, the president's hostility and rhetoric towards the media has been absorbed by his supporters and directed back at us in ways that make us feel threatened. And the thing that I'm concerned about, Eric, is that we're going to have a situation in this country where a reporter is uh, hurt or, God forbid, killed. And at that point, the United States of America, as I write in the book, joins a different category of countries around the world where the press is not safe covering the leader of the free world. And we just can't have a situation like that in this country.
One of the president's constant themes since the day he started running for president, right up until this past week, is a fear uh, and dislike of immigrants. That's a personal story for you as well. Your dad uh, came to America from Cuba as a child, as an immigrant. What, what is your worry in terms of what he is stoking, in a sense, uh, on the uh, issue of immigration? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, it is a, a personal story for me. My father came to this country in 1962, three weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, when he came to this country, uh, John F. Kennedy wasn't referring to immigrants as rapists and criminals as Donald Trump has with Mexican immigrants. Uh, just in the last week, as we've all seen with these uh, racist tweets that he put out over the weekend and the drama and saga that ensued, uh, he is continuing to demonize immigrants in this country in ways that we just haven't seen before. And it makes it a challenge for the press. It, it's very challenging if you're a reporter in terms of how to cover that. Do you call these tweets racist? We at CNN have made the determination that those tweets were racist and should be deemed as such. Uh, but no question about it, you know, I, I come from an immigrant background. My father, uh, you know, told me about the stories that he dealt with uh, growing up in this country. Uh, but, you know, he dealt with warmth and compassion in many cases, talked about uh, the teacher who would pull him out of class every day to help him learn how to read and write, talked about the Presbyterian Church uh, just across the Potomac River in northern Virginia that provided he and my grandmother with coats and sweaters and so on. And so while I was born in this country, I feel I was very much exposed to an immigrant experience in the United States that is very different uh, than what is uh, happening right now in the U.S., where there are lots of immigrants across this country who are living in fear. And uh, to me, that's just an un-American uh, type of experience and, and one that uh, we in the press have to really take uh, a cold, hard look at. I mean, uh, you know, many in Canada are watching what's happening down there with a certain level of shock because we wonder, is, is America changing? Because this president is sitting in the 40s uh, in terms of popularity and within striking distance of a re-election. Uh, is America changing? Well, as I write in the book, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about what Donald Trump is doing to America than what we're doing to ourselves. When you have a rally like we saw the other night in North Carolina, where people are chanting, send her back, uh, with respect to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, uh, to some extent, yes, America is changing. But as uh, Winston Churchill used to say, uh, the United States typically does the right thing after exhausting all other options. And Eric, as I, you know, I've gone uh, to places around the world and talked to people about my book. What I tell people is that please don't lose faith in the United States of America. The United States is more than one elected leader. And we're going to have an election in 2020, and we're going to find out exactly uh, where America turns after that. But to some extent, there, I, I think it's undoubtedly the case that, yes, to some extent, uh, America is changing. If you have uh, political rallies where that sort of thing is going on, if you have millions of people who are comfortable with the President of the United States referring to the press as the enemy of the people, there are people who are emotionally invested in Donald Trump, and he is exploiting that right now. No question about it. All right. Well, Jim Acosta, the book is The Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth in America. Thank you for talking to us about it. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate the time. Long before politics, Green Party leader Elizabeth May fell in love with cooking at her parents' restaurant on Cape Breton Island. On this week's Hill Hobby, we're in the kitchen for an East Coast dish and some West Coast politics. Elizabeth May, uh, your Hill Hobby is cooking. The one thing I really love doing when I get any time off 
is having enough time to go out and get really good food, cook, and have friends over. Even after cooking for thousands and thousands of tourists, I still love cooking. So what, what are you cooking for us today? This is one of the recipes I actually used to make on board our restaurant. And I'd actually go down to the wharf sometimes and talk to the fishermen and buy their salmon. And they'd say, you know, it's getting scarce. So I went home in the winter and I thought, gosh, I've got to replace some of my salmon recipes. Because yep. we're clearly running out of salmon. But we're never going to run out of cod. Never so really. I put more cod dishes on the menu. So I was so thrilled when I found this obscure cookbook of recipes from Portugal and found cod Portuguese and these amazing flavors. This is olive oil, uh, sauteed eggplant, and onions. Looks, so the, looks tasty. Yeah, so the next layer is to put this wonderful mixture of brown rice, cumin, and capers. And because I couldn't get sustainable cod anywhere, mm -hmm. this is sustainable haddock, but it's close enough. So this cod, which is now haddock, has also <laughs> been seasoned with a mixture of white, of, of course, salt, pepper, cayenne pepper, and paprika. And it's been rubbed into the flesh of the fish. So what we've got here, which is now a layer of eggplant sauteed in olive oil, a layer of beautiful organic tomatoes, I mean, rather organic onions sauteed in olive oil, now on top of the fish, a layer of organic fresh tomatoes. This is a very juicy dish. Then we add this, which is hot water, it's, and lemon juice, and cloves. Talk about your wonderful flavors going on here. It's wow. a very flavorful dish. So that is cod Portuguese. I'll put it in the oven and show you what it looks like in a minute. How important to you is it that uh, that food is is sustainable? That your that your belief in you know in, yeah. in greenness it translates to what you do in terms of the food preparation or it's the food consumption. Being mindful of where the food comes from, what hands prepared it, being grateful for it, having a sense of gratitude for abundance, and knowing that it came from a place where the farmers benefited, the fish is sustainable. It's essential. Nothing here was packaged either, and, uh, and, and that matters to you. The tomatoes were in that plastic packaging, hate to okay. admit it. I try very hard to avoid excess packaging. I mean, we can ban single-use plastics, and we should, but we need to get our grocery stores to recognize that not everything needs to be wrapped in plastic. The less, the better, and I think they're getting the message. Are you finding that the, that, uh, the public is finally moving in the direction? Like, you wrote a book. I wrote one of the dummies books on global warming. Yes. Yeah. And that was 11 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the public is catching up? The public was always there. I think politicians are catching up. 80% of Canadians since the early 1990s in a figure that stayed relatively stable till now says we need climate action. And you have generation after generation of politicians who thinks, oh boy, that's going to be tough. We could lose some votes. So we better kick that but, down the road. But that's a bit of the issue the, because Canadians are a little bit on both sides of it. They, 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 they say and want the, the, the yeah. environment to be better and cleaner. Yeah. They also want the gas not to be any more expensive at the pump. Yeah, but I mean, we never made public policy decisions on anything else important by saying, is everybody really ready yet? I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't know when I first started working on this issue that in 2019, when I was 65, we'd still be having a conversation about getting started. Yeah. That's the tragedy. We've lost decades through procrastination, and now the problem is so much worse, and the solutions are so much harder, yes. and they are going to involve some pain in some areas. But if we don't act, we never talk about what happens if, okay, so suppose we decide this is all too hard, and we kick it down the road to the next 
generation of politicians. They'll find themselves in a situation where they're facing runaway, self-accelerating, unstoppable global warming that threatens the survival of human civilization. And they'll be looking back and saying, why didn't those idiots in 2019 do the right thing? Now, my very high-priced sous chef. Yes, thank you go. very much. Talent galore. Here we go. Don't burn your wrists. I will. Thank you. And how long is it going to take for that to cook? That's about 30 minutes. It's a 350-degree oven. It's going to be absolutely delicious. Hey, honey! Hello, Olivia. <laughs> nice to meet you. How are you? Oh, I've missed you. Oh. I missed you. Listen, oh, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. This is Eric Sorensen. Hello, Eric. John. John Kidder. We got married. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about that. How's married life treating you so far? Let me ask you that. It's got to well, be good because he never sees me. It's wonderful, especially when I see her. <laughs> We're both running for Parliament at the yeah. same time yeah. and yeah. in different places. Now, let me just ask you first about cooking. Do you cook together at all? Yeah. The yeah. first time we had friends over, and we just had started dating, really. Mm -hmm. The first thing we ever did together in a kitchen was cook brunch for 20. Let me ask you each about the, the political fortunes of the Green Party this time around. Um, in the past, the Green Party has, had it, has seen its poll numbers go up, and then on Election Day, people abandon them and go back to the traditional yeah. parties in some way. Do you have reason to believe that will change this time? Yeah, I think it has already changed. At first we thought, okay, it's weird that Elizabeth May got elected, but that must just be <laughs> a, a British Columbia thing. Yeah. And then Andrew Weaver's elected. But how did David Kuhn get elected in Fredericton? Well, and then Peter Bevan Baker and the PEI Greens have formed official opposition, and Mike Schreiner's working so hard and earning so much respect at Queen's Park. And suddenly people we are, we are saying, well, as soon as Greens are electable, and you vote Green, you can elect a Green yeah. MP. That's what changes, because up till now, people felt, I really want to vote Green, but oh my gosh, I can't elect a Green. You're not worried then about uh, the, the Greens coming up a certain amount, the Liberals coming down a certain amount, because some of those voters are, the, are with those two parties, and the Conservatives will then form a government. With the cards being dealt as they are with five parties with names on the ballot across Canada, and in Quebec six, it increases the likelihood that this is going to be a minority parliament. And a minority parliament, what you want is as many people as possible who are prepared to cooperate, work across party lines, and put principle first, which translates into we need a lot of greens in that parliament to make sure the parliament works well. Right. We've, uh, we've had a lot of cooperation in the kitchen here today. <laughs> is, uh, is this thing ready to come out just about? Oh, yeah. And it's in that pan of water, so I have to be a little tricky as I get it out. Mm -hmm. And then I'll take it, and let's have a look. Isn't that gorgeous? Cod Portuguese. That looks great. And I want to thank you both for talking to us today and uh, Elizabeth for cooking for us. Well, thanks, Eric. That is the West Block for this Sunday. Thank you for sampling the show with us. I'm Eric Sorensen. We'll see you next time.